Good morning. Today's reading is from Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Sherry. Morning, Arcadia. Happy New Year. Good to see you all. If you're new, welcome. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Arcadia, and uh, it is true we are going to be doing Tom Schrader's outline of uh, past year, present year. I'll talk about that in a minute. I wanted to mention one, uh, one more thing. Did, did, did we talk about the women's prayer? We did. Okay. That's Monday night, a week from tomorrow night. But that Wednesday night thing, uh, Seth Trout, when... Um, it was early December, I think it was, that the Arcadia pastors went on a little retreat to do some planning for 2024, and one of the things that we decided is that uh, we're going to do fewer things on Wednesday night, but we're going to go really deep in those things on Wednesday night, uh, and we're going to remove every possible barrier for people to be able to come. We're always going to have dinner, we're always going to have childcare, and we're going to bring in uh, um, uh, uh, sometimes outside speakers, but also sometimes uh, just really focused work from our pastors as well. And this is sort of the spirit behind bringing Seth in to do technology in the home. He is a doctor, and he actually wrote his PhD th dissertation um, on this topic, the technology in the home. I've known Seth for eight or nine years, um, and, and this is... After I got to know him, I went to his boss, Luke Simmons, out at Redemption Gateway, and I just said, here's my impression of Seth. He's usually the smartest and wisest person in the room, but he doesn't let anybody know that. And he said, that's exactly who he is. He's, he's brilliant, but humble. And I would really encourage you to come uh, to that Wednesday night uh, thing with Seth. And then we're, we're trying, there will be uh, some months where we're going to do something every Wednesday night, but there are going to be some months where we just do one thing on a Wednesday night. And this uh, January is going to be one thing on a Wednesday night, and that's going to be on the 17th. So um, today we are doing the Tom Schrader outline of the prior year, present year assessment. And then um, I, I started this about eight years ago. Uh, telling you what I thought were the most important books that I read in the last uh, year. And for some reason, people say that's the only sermon they come to on, uh, throughout the entire year. So um, welcome. We're glad you're here. I'll see you next year. Um, I don't know why. I, I, you know. Anyway, I'll do that at the end of this thing. But there's a lot going on in today's sermon. Um, we're going to do that prior year, present year assessment, but differently. And the reason is because we're going to use that assessment as a foundation to introduce our January series, which is going to be called Get Wisdom, and it's going to be in the book of Proverbs. We, needed, we felt like we needed at least three and a half Sundays to be able to do that. And so I'm truncating the, the, the Schrader uh, thing today, but the, the outline also serves as a great introduction into this idea of uh, getting wisdom. And by the way, I just want to mention again, in case you hadn't noticed that I'm really excited about this, in February and March, we're going to do the book of Esther for eight weeks. I'm very excited about that. Anyway, 
Uh, so an abbreviated prior year, uh, present year assessment. Take notes if you like. You may have some passages to look up later. But also, if you scan the QR code in front of you, you can, uh, it'll direct you to our slides for today as well. So you can actually look at the slides on your phone or, or, or whatever uh, today if that would be helpful to you because there's always a ton of slides on this sermon and uh, we never leave them up long enough and people want to take pictures and now you, just, you can just access them through our website. So here's how we start the process. We analyze how 2023 was and uh, a grid that the world might use or anybody might use uh, usually kind of goes something like this. It's not all these questions. You may have others, but it's something like this. Uh, in 2023, did I make more money than in 2022? Did I improve my position in 2023 or enhance my career over the prior year? Did I increase my influence over others? And this one, I always love this one. Did I cause envy or jealousy in anyone? If I made somebody upset about how well I was doing, it was a great year, you know? So uh, that's kind of the world's way to evaluate. Nothing really wrong with that, but um, it's going to be different than what we would uh, maybe look at. So think about on a scale of 1 to 10, how is your 2023 based on those four questions? Now, Tom, our founding pastor, would say, we actually have what we think is a better criteria, and there's five questions you should ask, and here they are. Number one, in 2023, did you recognize the importance of self-evaluation? Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, and he writes something similar in a couple of other places as well. For instance, in Romans, he writes in Galatians 6, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not... So he's speaking to everyone, because we've all done this at one time or another. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Everyone should test their own actions, not others, so they can then find fulfillment in their own walk in life without comparing themselves to anyone else. Here's the second one. In 2023, did you understand the value of your time? In Psalm 90, in the midst of a psalm, uh, that where the psalmist is lamenting, he's grieving about the amount of sin and corruption in the world, the author prays to God in that psalm that God would teach us to number our days correctly so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, understanding how time works is actually one way that we can become wiser in our life. Uh, with, um, time is the only resource that you and I have that we're on equal footing with everybody else and there's no way that we can get more of it than anyone else. You can always go make more money. You can always uh, network with more people. You can always do uh, so many other things and get more, but time is exactly the same for everybody. And so the question becomes then, are you going to spend your time or are you going to invest it? Number three, in 2023, did your victories exceed your defeats? I have long said that one of the challenges with sort of the Christian attitude is that we're not very good at celebrating our victories when we do have uh, victories. And I understand that we want to be humble, but we should also celebrate when God does something magnificent for us. But that's not Paul's view. Paul celebrates his victories. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I have fought the good fight. And if you know Paul's life and you can read about it in the book of Acts, you know that he lost a lot. But when he won, he always celebrated his victories. And then number four, in 2023, did you finish well? I've run 
a number of marathons and my goal was always to finish. I never wanted to have a DNF next to my name, did not finish. Everybody, anybody can start a race. Anybody can start a project. Anybody can have a New Year's resolution. How many of you have actually kept your New Year's resolution in any year of your life all the way through the 12 months? We're usually done by like January. Some of you are done right now. I know that. But we're usually done by January 15th. Uh, Anybody can start something, but can you finish it? Again, Paul in 2 Timothy says, I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And then I love this, this, um, uh, this uh, verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 7 in the Old Testament where Solomon says that the end of something is better than the beginning. And, and I've done more than 500 weddings. I've officiated more than 500 weddings. That's always my opening line in the wedding. Solomon says the end of something is better than the beginning. And it just throws wet water over all the celebration right out of the gate. It's wonderful. Your goal is to finish well. Everything's going great now. You look great. Everything's great. <laughs> Gravity wins, okay? So anyway, <laughs> and, then in, and then number five, in 2023, did you anticipate the return of Christ? And you know, we did Revelation for 12 weeks this last fall, and so this might be familiar to us, I hope. Jesus says in Revelation 22, look, I am coming soon. And my reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. In other words, have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So you take that first, those first four questions, that criteria, you compare them to the criteria we just looked at, these five questions, and you might notice a shift. You know, maybe, maybe 2023, according to the first criteria, was a four. But now, according to this most recent criteria, now it's a nine or an eight. And it could go the other way as well. But we're suggesting this as a criteria. So then we also say, uh, as you look ahead to 2024, keep those five things in mind. But there are five more that we should consider as well. So in 2024, we should work to improve our relationships. Paul Uh, The apostle writes to Timothy when he's in prison in Rome in the early 60s AD, and he writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ, to Timothy, my beloved child, my beloved child. Now, Timothy is not Paul's biological son, but he is his spiritual son. And there is a connection in Christ that often is much stronger than just a DNA connection between people. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, his spiritual father was a guy named Larry Wright. And I know there are a few people in this, in this room right now that remember Larry Wright, a great Bible teacher. And Larry, Larry um, uh, led G- uh, Tom to Jesus and discipled him as long as Larry was alive. And Larry used to write letters to Tom that would start with, my dear Timothy. I mean, that's the relationship that they had with each other. And then I've always considered Tom my spiritual father. And there was something very, very special between us as well. But Tim, uh, Paul goes on to write to Timothy saying this, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, 
As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. Do we have relationships like that? And are we developing relationships like that? Second, in 2024, desire and increase in freedom. Now, I'm going to talk about freedom in a whole different context in a few minutes when we talk about uh, the world and its understanding of freedom. But here, what we're talking about is freedom in Christ. And we would say that uh, whatever it is that you're serving or worshiping in this life, that isn't God, you are likely in bondage to that thing, that thing that you're exalting in your life. And it could be a very good thing. It could be your career or your family or education or wealth or whatever it is. Those aren't necessarily bad things. But when you exalt them above God, they become, that's when they become a false God and a problem because now they're taking you away from the one true God. And so you're in bondage to that thing. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 7, and this is from the message translation because I I love the way Peterson worded this. Uh, Paul writes, God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved by the world. Brothers and sisters, stay where you were called to be. God is there. Hold the high ground with him at your side. And then number three, consider your passion and zeal. Is it for Jesus and the gospel? Paul writes to the church in Rome, and, and at the beginning of chapter 9, he just, he just really lets his heart overflow with how much he wishes that his fellow Jews would understand that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for, so much so that Paul is willing to give up his salvation, his eternal life in the New Jerusalem with God If all of his brothers and sisters, his kinsmen, would just simply come to Christ. He writes it this way. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's passion and zeal for Jesus. And then uh, number four, in 2024, are we going to work on expanding our perspective? I'll mention this again uh, a little bit more later, but we use uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 here, where Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all feelings and passion. No, that's not what he writes. He writes that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. This is the same thing he wrote, if you were here last week for our one service, he wrote the same thing to the church in Colossae in in chapter 1 as well. His prayer is that your love would lead you to knowledge and wisdom as well as these feelings of passion. And he says the reason for that is so that you may approve what is excellent and then be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then finally, number five, in 2024, will we commit to a strengthening of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in our lives? I don't have a passage for this because there's myriad passages for this, but I will say this. Our staff at Redemption Arcadia are only going to be as good and work as well as our prayers for ourselves and your prayers for us. I've, I've often said that 
Um, in, in Christian world, in church world, um, prayer is a problem. Prayer is like the social media of, of the Christian world. You get on social media and you look at other people's lives and you're like, everybody else has a better life than I do, obviously. And we do that in the, in the church with prayer. We're sure that everybody else is praying better and longer and stronger than we are. And so everybody has this, this sort of um, self-deprecating attitude towards their own prayer. And so it's something that we have to purposely and consciously, constantly push ourselves into. And so our, our, uh, our staff is doing that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited that we now have Malia who leads our prayer ministry and is, and, and is uh, keeping us more and more focused on the importance of that. So that's 2023 and 2024. There's your Schrader outline. So now let's uh, introduce our January series called Get Wisdom. And I know I've had a lot of people say, why did you name it that? Well, it's in the Bible. So uh, sorry, we named it after a Bible verse, okay? And we'll read that verse eventually. But uh, the, the idea behind this is that we're going to be specifically for these three and a half Sundays in the book of Proverbs. Today, I'm going to introduce the series with a little bit of help from Pastor Trey. And then in the next three weeks, we're going to look at... Um, wisdom through instruction, wisdom through correction, and getting wisdom through implementation. And you may ask, well, what does this have to do with the outline you just gave us? Well, getting wisdom empowers us to do a better job with the first point in the prior year analysis. Did you recognize the importance of self-evaluation? And with the fourth point of this year's goals and assessments, we need to expand our, expand our perspective. And among other things, the book of Proverbs is about self-evaluation and perspective and wisdom is a key to both. And so that's how it relates. Now, I want to do an introduction into um, kind of like what the worldly wisdom is like these days and, and show how that might be deficient and why we need godly wisdom. And then we'll get into the Proverbs uh, a little bit. Uh, it's interesting. We live in a world today that mostly claims people will say uh, that they mostly would like to expand their perspective. But then you find out when you talk to them, when the rubber meets the road, the perspective they are talking about ex expanding is the perspective that they already have. They're really not that interested in hearing any challenges to the perspective they already have or any alternatives to the perspective they already have. They just want to go into their echo chamber and find more evidence for why their perspective is already correct. And I'll give you an example. I want you to think about this. One of the most popular and never questioned mantras of contemporary culture is, you do you. You do you. You know, that just sounds good, and it fits on a bumper sticker. And by the way, there's a casino that has a billboard at 16th Street and Glendale, and it says, you do you. So apparently, the best way you can do you do you is to go to a casino and give them all your money. That's how you do you, in their opinion. But you do you is a mantra. You got to do you. In other words, uh, you should be who you are. And, and whatever and whoever that is, you should just be. And no one has a right to question it. You just be you. And nobody should ever come and question that. Yet, yet, yet. Have you noticed that if you do or be the wrong thing in public or online, you get canceled? What happened to you do you? You do you until I don't like it anymore. That's a problem. That's a contradiction. And this is all rooted in postmodern theology, uh, philosophy, 
which we've been increasingly held captive since the 1960s. I will tell you, I've been reading and studying postmodern philosophy for decades now. And, and I feel like I can speak to this a little bit, and that's why we're going to do this for a couple of minutes to help us understand what's going on. One of the early guarantees of postmodern philosophy and critical theory, so we're going back to like the 70s and 80s and even the 60s, one of the early guarantees is that we would erase and eliminate all absolute truth claims and all authority. No absolute truth and authority is all bad. Absolute truth and authority are oppressive. They're bad. Absolute truth and authority are why the world has all the problems that it has. That is one of the core beliefs of postmodern uh, philosophy. And you know, truth is relative. Have you heard that? The truth is relative. Truth is contextually bound. There's no such thing as absolute truth. No big T truth. Your truth is not my truth and my truth is not your truth. But then you read a guy like Tim Keller, and let me tell you a little bit about Tim Keller. He passed away this last year. He was a Christian pastor, author, and philosopher. And, and again, I'll just tell you, I, I don't read a lot of Christian philosophers. I read, I read a lot of philosophy. Um, and the reason I don't read just Christian philosophers as a pastor, that even actually disturbs some people, but the reason you don't is because it is a basic rhetorical principle of argumentation, that if you don't understand the argument or the position of the other person, you really don't understand your argument or your position. You need to understand what's going on. But Keller's really good at this stuff. And so tell, uh, Keller's writing about this, and he's talking about this, and he says, you know, uh, absolute truth is out, according to the postmodernists, but then they sneak one in. They sneak one in, and here's, here's what he says. There's many, but here's, here's a big one. He says they sneak in the idea that absolute freedom and autonomy for the individual is the highest value that we can live by. Absolute freedom, absolute autonomy is the highest value that we can... That's an absolute truth that freedom is the highest value we live. And then he says, but by what authority? By what authority? I thought authority was bad too. Well, it is, but well, then by what authority? Who... Who says this is the highest value? And by the way, he also makes this argument. There are limits on freedom. There are limits on freedom. Uh, we, we, we like to say that we're autonomous, but it's just not true. And, and, he, and he says this, and this is really helpful, insightful. He says, the limits on freedom aren't even imposed by other people. They're imposed by reality and by yourself. Think about it. Think about it. Furthermore, if truth is relative, that naturally leads to the fact that morality is also now relative. Postmodern worldview moved us knee-deep into moral relativism as the primary and superior doctrine for how we should live our lives. Ironically, an authoritative absolute doctrine, moral relativism. The fact that there's no absolute truth is what? An absolute truth, isn't it? I brought that up at ASU one time. I thought I was not going to get out of the room alive, okay? <laughs> the problem is, is it hasn't worked. Why? How has it not worked? Well, besides the aforementioned problem with freedom, it is an absolute value that racism is always wrong. Well, sure it is, of course. But how do we know that? Under what authority is that true? I would argue 
that that value actually comes from the Old and New Testaments. That's where it came from, that racism is a problem. God shows no favoritism with anyone. Okay? It's also, here's one more, it's an absolute truth that anything, anything that is fundamentally driven, that is not fundamentally driven by justice and equity is by definition immoral. Well, again, that doesn't sound very relative or contextually bound, and I could go on and on and on. The sociologist Robert Bella, uh, in the 80s, in his uh, book, Habits of the Hearts, already recognized some of these problems coming down the road. He wrote this, it is impossible to live in both relativism and morality simultaneously. It's impossible to live in both relativism and and, uh, morality simultaneously. Um, when I first became a Christian, when I was 27, I started hearing from my non-Christian friends who were shocked that I became a Christian. And I still hear this today, over and over and over. I hear people, one of the great critiques of Christianity is that, well, you know, Christians are hypocrites. Christians are hypocrites. And, and I remember at first, you know, that stung a little bit, and I didn't, I didn't like that. But then I started reading the Bible, and I started analyzing human nature and stuff, and I was like, Yeah, we are. We are. We should own that. We should embrace that. Next time somebody says, you know, the problem with Christianity is Christianity is hypocrites, say, yes, we are. Thank you for acknowledging that. Of course we're hypocrites. You know why? Everyone's a hypocrite. Has anyone ever lived in the history of the world that was not a hypocrite? Yeah, one person. That would be not a trick question. Who was it? You're in church now. Okay. We're all hypocrites. Nobody has ever, ever lived their life by exactly what they have always said or said they believe. No one has ever done that. But that's the point of Jesus going to the cross. Because he took care of that for us. So yeah, own that fact that we are hypocrites. The author Samuel James says it this way. Morality and guilt have not gone away. They are simply under new management. I love that. Um, Charles Taylor, who's a philosopher, he, he writes this. In theory, we are all relativists, but in practice, when talking to others, we are all absolutists. We're hypocrites. So here's what, what's happened with postmodern theory and philosophy and why we need to talk about wisdom. When postmodern theory purveyors went from the abstract and the academic in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s to concrete pedestrian life in the 2000s, they found out that life doesn't always operate in practice the way it does in blue sky theory. And suddenly, the tolerance that was preached in the 80s and 90s became the dogma that had to be enforced in the 2000s. This is the postmodern or the new brand of worldly wisdom. There's always been worldly wisdom. It just keeps getting repackaged and, and, and remarketed for us. And so when Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5 that you and I should be seeking God's will and wisdom because the days are evil. He says, because we live in a dark and corrupt world, because there are challenges that we face all the time. We need God's wisdom and will to be able to navigate that. He was speaking directly not only about his context of worldly foolishness, but about the cauldron of worldly foolishness that we find ourselves in today. The wisdom of the world will always be foolishness to God. 
And besides that, the wisdom of the world doesn't really work. So three more weeks after today, in the wisdom literature of the book of Proverbs, uh, one of the verses that we uh, looked at during our uh, retreat in um, December and we decided to do this series is Proverbs one twenty three, which says, which reads, If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. So let's talk about the book of Proverbs for a minute. Uh, mostly the book of Proverbs, not all, maybe 85 or 90%. Most of it was written by King Solomon 3,000, 3,100 years ago. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we know that, uh, we're told that King Solomon wrote about 3,000 Proverbs, and many of them are included in this book. The book of Proverbs is written to describe the wise person and the foolish person. What's the difference between a wise person and a foolish person? And to try to persuade the person who is yet to decide if they will be a wise person or a foolish person. It's written to uh, specifically to the person who's on the fence about where they're going to go. Are they going to follow God or are they going to follow uh, the world? And, and as I've talked about this series in individual conversations to people over the last couple of weeks, and I've mentioned that to them, it's been interesting to me how many of them say, well, why wasn't Proverbs written to the fool? Why wouldn't it be written to the foolish person? Well, here's why. One of the strongest and most accurate definitions of a fool is one who will not listen to instruction, correction, or teaching on wisdom. So why write it to the, to the fool? Okay, They're not going to listen anyway. Okay, The main characteristic of a fool is that they reject wisdom. Furthermore, you might want to just think about your most foolish friends, acquaintances, and family members. Don't they speak more than they listen? Have you ever thought about that? And then this, Proverbs is goads and nails. You know, I have very few original thoughts. I I just take stuff from everybody else, and hopefully I cite it when I do, okay? I don't want to get in trouble with that. But I heard this on a podcast once a while back, and I thought, that's gold. Proverbs is goads and nails. And what does that mean? A goad is what a shepherd uses to move his or her sheep along the right path and to keep the sheep from straying into foolishness and danger. And we all know how foolish sheep we can be. Proverbs gently but with beautiful and strong rhetoric pushes us towards wisdom and away from foolishness. And then the nails part. You and I need a solid, sturdy foundation on which to build our life. And there's two passages that speak to this that I'd like to have Pastor Trey come up and read for us, and then I'm going to interview Trey as part of this message. So, Trey, come on up. Will you please welcome our family pastor, Trey Fraley? Good morning. Not one whistle or woohoo in there. I know, seriously. We're okay. sleeping this morning. All right. So, um, Matthew seven twenty four through 27, it's what uh, Sherry read for us, but you're going to give us a little context. And then uh, Paul says, Jesus is our wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1, and so you read that passage too. Yes, exactly. Well, if you have your Bible, actually open up to Matthew 7. Um, and what's interesting about when you read Scripture, when you read something, you're like, man, that's really cool. And then you read what's around it, and you're like, oh... I understand a little bit more. The canvas has more coloring on it than just that one line. So um, in Matthew 7 where it says, Jesus building your house upon the rock, just before it, if you look, it says, 
um, just above it, you can see it says, I never knew you. And that passage, that uh, section right before Jesus talking about building your house on the rock, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And then he goes on and these people are like, well, we did this and we did that. And he's like, yeah, but you didn't do the will of my father. So this is what he responds to that with. So if you're in this place where you're like, I don't want to be the person who sees Jesus face to face and says, Lord, Lord. And then Jesus says, away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. If you don't want to be that person, listen to the next thing Jesus says, because this is the context of it. In chapter 24, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Many of us would like to read this and say, well, if Jesus just said, well, he who follows most of what I said, that's not what he said. And then at the end, you see that it's Jesus's authority that comes after that. So we're just hearing from Frank, on what authority do you bring this paradigm of relativity or of, 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 of absolution? Well, the creator of the universe, the agent of creation is the one who said, do what I'm saying and it'll lead to life. So that's the context of that passage. It's huge. It gets way more color than just reading. Okay, so do the thing with house on the rock. I understand foundation. I'm in construction, whatever. No, there's so much more to that. So then um, in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to flip there. I'll grab that in a minute. <laughs> Things are always falling out of my Bible. You know what they say? If your Bible is a mess, your life probably isn't. That's pretty good. So <clears throat> we're going to go 1 Corinthians 1.26. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of, were of noble birth. Ironically, there's probably many in here who are considered those things. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Jesus became this for us, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love that because Paul says Jesus became wisdom for us, and that wisdom went to the cross. That doesn't sound very wise. Yeah, I know. That's really fo- We'll talk about yeah. that more <laughs> later, but because um, it'll be one of the questions I'll ask you. But uh, first, um, I have four questions for you that I want to ask you. Um, this series that we're doing right now, when we got our preaching calendar, it said congregational choice in January. And so one of the things that we did when we went away in, in December as pastors is um, we thought, well, what are we going to do in, in January? And, and really, this series emerged as, as, as more your brainchild than any of us. So we're, we're saying this is Trey's brainchild. I, I could tell... He, 
I could tell he wanted to do this. If, if, when Trey suddenly sits up, sits forward, and sits on the edge of his seat, and his face gets all like this, okay, that's what you got to do. And, and that, he was talking about the Proverbs and wisdom uh, like that. I said, well, let's do that. So we wanted to hear from you. Uh, first question, uh, give us some of your thinking on this series, uh, the why and the burn, the why and the burn. Well, since you have a why and the burn, two things, I'm responding with two things. So here are the two things. The first is this. We want to preach to you the whole counsel of God as faithful pastors. The last thing that Paul says to the elders in Ephesus when he's on his way to Jerusalem, he knows that death awaits him. It's, he knows the Spirit's told him this is the last time you're going to see these people. And the thing he tells them is he says, tend the flock, do the things that I taught you to do. And then he says this. This is crazy. How do you, how do you say you did a faithful job as a pastor? He says, I did, not recant, I did not at all keep from you the whole counsel of God. Right. I preached to you the whole counsel of God. This is the job of a pastor, <clears throat> that we remove nothing and that we add nothing. We give you God's word. You might not hear a lot of sermons today in a lot of churches out of Proverbs because it's really hard to get a coherent thing. There's a lot of different things going on. It's wisdom of a dad to a son. But we want to preach to you the whole counsel of God so that your soul might be ready and um, created blameless before the Lord. And that matters. We're not just here as a movie theater where we come and hear a good sermon. We're a family that meets together, an eternal family. We're going to see each other in heaven. And so we're preparing us for that in the way that God told us to do it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that our church needs Proverbs. Our church needs Proverbs, just like every other church today. Because loving wisdom is different than loving what seems right to you. Mm -hmm. Loving wisdom is different than loving what feels right to you. We live in a world today where it's virtuous to live out of what seems right or love what feels right to you. That's what's virtuous. Frank was talking about that earlier. You do you. You do you. So then naturally, we have, if you want life, you have to love wisdom or the things that objectively lead to wisdom, not just what seems right right now, not just what feels right right now. We need Proverbs. So for those two reasons, we want to preach the whole okay. counsel of God and because we need Proverbs that we would love wisdom and not just the things that feel right to us. Good. So second question, a little bit different. Why are you excited about this series? Well, I get excited about a lot of things, um, <laughs> but I'm an animated guy, passionate. But the first is that of course, we want to love what God has written in the Bible. But we should also love the way in which he wrote it. Right. And if you know this, Proverbs is written mostly in poetry. And many of us would say, well, that's stupid. Why would you write instruction in poetry? You should use prose. You should use something that cannot be misunderstood. That's how we do it today as 21st century Americans. But God thought it was more important that you don't misunderstand the beauty and truth. Many of us are sitting in here and we're like, man, I, I like church. I like the family thing. I, the Bible is kind of weird. I don't ever read my Bible. And many of us are like, you should love your Bible. Me telling you that means nothing unless you see the beauty in truth. So what we want for us, the thing that we're excited about, is that we want to see the beauty in truth in, in um, Proverbs. And of course, I'm more excited to see what God has to say about wisdom than uh, our boy uh, Jordan Peterson or our girl Oprah Winfrey, you know? We should really, 
Look to what God says more than them. That's only the second time I've heard those two names in the same sentence. The first time was in the 7.30 service. So question number three. <laughs> what do you hope Redemption Arcadia will receive in this series? Yeah, so <laughs> good. Proverbs 4.26 says, Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Many of us are here not pondering our path, but we know that our way is sure. So then if we accurately and objectively ponder our path, it leads to knowing that our way is sure. All of us want that. Scripture's saying this is the road mark you have to stop at before you get there. Ponder the path of your feet. So I hope that we will see the true, the real beauty and the truth in wisdom from Proverbs. And I'm, and I'm hoping that we'll see that that ends at Christ and not towards just for the sake of using wisdom to get gold or to get silver or to get whatever you want. Yeah. And then finally, number four, um, since this series is your brainchild, my question is, why are you allowing me to speak into this series? My main reason is, well, you have more gray hair than I do. Okay, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, truthfully, so um, both both of us are are dads. Um, You're much more seasoned than I Many would say, maybe I'm the only one who would say this, but the truth is that parenting is like spiritual CrossFit for your character. Uh-huh. Many of you might know what I'm talking about, but if you've not known patience until you, until you anyway. So, uh, <laughs> but more importantly, it's not about the wisdom that we've gained as parents, but the understanding of a dad wanting his son or his child to get wisdom and to love it. And that there's nothing else that you can do but to give the instruction and pray to God that they grab it. And we know that. We know what that feels like, that all you want for your kids is life, but they have to choose it. So then the truth is, why, why is it that we teamed up and why are we excited to give God's wisdom in this way? Because it leads to life and we're praying to God that our church would grab hold of it and love it. It's God's wisdom. It's not ours. No matter how much hair or no hair that you have, based on the experience and years in your life, nothing compares to God's wisdom. So um, before I ask you that last question about the foolishness of the cross, let's just kind of go back and forth and read a couple of the verses that we identified on our retreat as as keys to this uh, series. So Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. There's our series title right there. That's what, I love that verse for that reason. It's so good. Uh, he read 426. I'm going to read 425 through 427 so you hear that paths uh, part with a little bit of context. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. In Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, many of us know part of this, but I love it in its context. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. This is where the coffee mug reference stops, but then it goes on. It's not about you and your path being straight alone. It says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And then Proverbs 1, 8, and 9, I love this because right out of the gate, Solomon tells his son, you need to listen to your mother. 
<laughs> and it's not the only place in Proverbs where this is made very, very important. But he says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. In Proverbs fourteen twelve, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. And then Proverbs sixteen sixteen. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. So, Talk a little bit about the foolishness of the cross. We follow a savior, a king, who was crucified. That seems foolish. Yeah, and in fact, right before, in the passage that I read in 1 Corinthians 1, if you go up a little bit on chapter 20 through 25, if I can answer your question with what the scripture would say, it says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what, was, um, what we preach, the gospel, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It is and seems like foolish to say, for you to win and have life, you have to die. Yeah. And Jesus did that. But the neat thing about Jesus is he always takes his own medicine. Yeah. So he says, to give you life because your sin will keep you forever from the perfect relationship with God, I'll make a way. You profess your life and your belief in me. You repent and leave your sin and turn towards Jesus. And then you have eternal life. Only because Christ did that thing where he died your death and my death that we deserve. That's right. So then in that, though, we know that death didn't hold him because he didn't That's have right. his own sin to die for. He lived a perfect life. So then he's, he's risen three days later. And then we look at him now seated at the right hand of God, mediating for us who would put our faith in him. So eternal life comes at repenting. Believing and repenting. It's not just believing. Lord, Lord, we did the... No, believing and repenting. So then this is the call. Why is it foolishness that we would send our king in our stead? Well, hey, to win, go lose. And that's the same charge that we're given from Christ. Be as Christ. The servant is not better than his master. Go and lose that you might win. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. That is life. And in that you will find your life. That is what God says. That sounds like foolishness to the world. No, I got to take care of me. I got to self-help. I got to self-me. I got to do some self-care. I got to date myself right now. The world does not say what God says about what will give you life. That's right. So we, we proclaim the gospel every Sunday at, at Redemption Arcadia, and there it was right there in the answer to that question. So thanks, Trey, for coming up and yeah, thank you. helping. All right. I got... Three minutes to go through my list of five books that I would recommend out of what I've read. And the list is now 11, so it keeps growing every year. But I couldn't, I, I just couldn't edit it. So uh, let me run through it for you uh, quickly. And again, this is on the website for you too. So the first one was a book that uh, my daughter Darby got me. 
uh, last Christmas. It's called The Forgotten 500 by Gregory Freeman. It's a World War II history book, and it's um, written about documents that have just been released about this Forgotten 500. So it's all brand new history and information. This stuff had been kept uh, secret for decades, and it just got released, and he wrote the book. It's, it's absolutely marvelous. Um, then uh, in the spring, I read Bibi, which is Benjamin Netanyahu's autobiography, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, he's a great storyteller as, as well as a leader. Um, and I will also say, uh, ironically, it, uh, reading that seems to give me a little bit more insight into what's going on in Gaza and Israel today. Uh, after that book, I read, um, and there were other books in between, but I read uh, The Genesis of Gender by Abigail Faval. Um, and, and it was a very helpful book, and I highly recommend it. And I pair that with Nancy Piercy's most recent book, The Toxic War on Masculinity. Now, I, 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 I don't especially care for the title because um, the title sounds like Piercy's going to do a polemic, but she's not doing uh, a polemic necessarily. Uh, instead, she's speaking with great wisdom and insight about the difference between culture's idea of masculinity and what godly manhood actually looks like. And if we, as a culture, would just embrace godly manhood, we would be better off. And she makes the case very well. She's done her homework. Um, the, the research is impeccable. And let me say two other things about this. I am so glad that there is somebody like Nancy Piercy out there today writing the books that she is. She has a way of articulating things that I think many of us know but can't articulate. She is a master at doing it. Uh, her book, Love Thy Body, and, uh, and her book, Total Truth, are also huge winners and have made my list in the past. And I would also recommend these two books together in this sense. Uh, Favali and, and, and Piercy both have incredible stories in their journey to faith that they unpack a little bit in each of these um, books. Um, the Canceling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianoff and, and uh, Ricky Schlott. Um, this is a, the sequel to a book that uh, Lukianoff or Lukianoff and uh, the philosopher Jonathan Haidt wrote uh, a few years ago called The Coddling of the American Mind, and this is absolutely fantastic. If you were to force me to pick one book out of these ten, that might be the one, but I'm going to come to that one, in, that one probably in just a second. Uh, the next one is Digital Liturgies by Samuel James. Very helpful book. Might be a good book for you. It's an easy read. Might be a good book for you to read before that Wednesday night um, uh, event with Seth Trout on the 17th. Uh, here's the book, Facing the Beast by Naomi Wolf. Um, I, I will tell you that uh, I, I actually, I was really moved by this book. I thought it was so insightful. She is impeccable in her research. She has a PhD in literature. She knows how to write. She's written many other books as well. Um, I, I, I wasn't sure if I should bring this book up because, uh, frankly, she'll make just about everybody mad with this book. If, if you lean politically towards the right, you're, you're going to want her address so that you can dox her. If you lean politically towards the left, you're just going to want to kill her. It does, it does, I, I'm just telling you. She, but, but you need to hear what she has to say. And one of the most incredible parts of this book for me is that she's a lifelong Jew who is beginning to encounter the New Testament. And in this book, she quotes the New Testament uh, several different times and at length. She's not a Christian yet. I would say yet. I think God's working on her. But um, just 
really an incredible memoir uh, that she writes. And then this book was really helpful to me. Uh, it's Timothy Keller's uh, biography, his spiritual and intellectual formation by his colleague Colin Hansen. And I love the methodology that Hansen used in writing this book. He said that I'm not going to write a book on Timothy Keller. I'm going to write a book on the influences on Timothy Keller's life. But it's going to be told through the story of Timothy and Kathy Keller. It's really wonderful and very helpful. And I could go on and talk for another 20 minutes about um, that book as well. Uh, the next two, the last two before I get to the one that you don't have to read because I'll just uh, give you a synopsis of it. Uh, but 9 and 10 are in my section called the nerd section. Um, Peter Zion and Vaslav Smeal are two of the nerdiest guys you'll ever want to meet. They are smart, smart, smart beyond anybody's uh, uh, imagination. And, and uh, they have so much data and they want to put it all in their books. Uh, and if you're willing to work through the minutiae of their data, there is gold in them, our hills. They're both fantastic books. Um, the End of the World is Just the Beginning. I just finished that as we were getting to our, uh, our series in the book of Revelation. So it sounds like a Revelation book. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, and then uh, Smeal's book is How the World Really Works. Uh, Zion's book is more of a here's what's going to happen in the future. Smeal's book is more like here's how it's really working now. Um, but they're beautifully complementary towards each other. And then the last one, you don't have to read it. It's a wonderful book. And I've had financial advisors tell me it's the best book on money that's ever been written. Uh, it's Morgan Household's book, uh, The Psychology of Money. It's a very easy read. He's an excellent storyteller, and he knows how to dumb things down for people like me. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful compliment to Dave Ramsey's um, Financial Peace University, uh, even though I don't think he knows who Dave Ramsey is, and I don't know if Dave Ramsey knows who he is, but um, it's a wonderful compliment to it. But here's what you need to know from this book, two things, and then you don't have to read it unless you want to. He says, what you know is not, in, not nearly as important as how you behave. What you know is not nearly as important as how you behave. Well, I know I need to invest for long term, but if you don't, the behavior screws you up, okay? And then these two words, time uninterrupted. Time uninterrupted. And if you're wondering, well, what does that mean? Well, come and talk to me or buy the book and read it. So there's your, there's your list. And uh, we're going to move into our time of reflection now. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for... Um, first of all, let me just thank you for the inspiration that you've given um, our pastoral staff, and in particular, Trey, for this series that we're going to be doing uh, in January, and I'm excited about it, and I think it's going to be very helpful, uh, and it is true, uh, not a lot of series are done in the book of Proverbs, and so I pray your favor on us and your blessing on us during that uh, series, and, and God, again, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we just pray that we would be people who would get wisdom and then live by it, but most of all, I pray that people would come to know your Son, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.